Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Yeah! So it's so great to see you guys say, man, I missed you last week, and then a few weeks ago we had the panel, which was fun, but man, I miss preaching, you know, I just miss getting up here and, and going for it, so hopefully... Um, you're all ready to go. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 8. Now, a few weeks ago, we did do a Q&A um, panel kind of thing, which basically involved you texting in questions. You remember that, and you had the opportunity to do that. And what's fun about those kinds of things is that they're unscripted. We don't know the questions that we're going to get, and so you, you sense this idea that we are dealing with something in real time, right? It's real time. It's not like it's planned in advance or whatever. So there's like this what's going to happen, what's going to be said, and it's a very effective way of addressing issues that come up in our lives. And I think that why that's important to understand that, because when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians and what we're going to talk about today, really if you were to take that whole book, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the entire second half of that letter, the part that we're starting now, really is nothing more than a Q&A session. That's all it is. Paul has questions, in essence, texted in, sent in to him, that he's not just, you know, spending months thinking about. In fact, some scholars have called the whole New Testament theology on the run, because these guys are, who wrote the New Testament, they weren't just, you know, sitting in a room with a, with a pipe, you know, and a bunch of books in a library and pacing the floor, pondering what to write about theology. They were on the move always from people that were trying to kill them. They were in prison. They were dealing with all kinds of situations, and so they they would get these issues and they go, okay, how do I interpret this in light of what the gospel says? And so you can see this all throughout um, 1 Corinthians. You see in, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It's a Q&A. And it goes on from there. Now concerning the betrothed, the engaged. What do I do if I'm engaged? And, and yet, you know, this, all this persecution is breaking out. Should I just ditch my fiance and stay single? This is a question that they had. And then chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. What happens if I eat a hamburger that was made from a cow that was sacrificed to Zeus? Does that mean I'm evil? That's a legitimate question back then because there were those that said that it would be evil to do that. And now concerning spiritual gifts. Are you only useful in a church if you can sing and you can preach? They didn't know. Now concerning the collection of the saints. What do we do about collecting money? So all these are questions. These are matters about which they wrote. And so this section, particularly that we're going to look at today, has to do with their questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And it is one of the most controversial segments of the entire Bible, really, when you think about it, because of how practical it is. And if you misinterpret it, or you go further than it was supposed to be gone, you can really cause yourself a lot of heartache and turmoil and cause other people a lot of heartache and turmoil. And, and to be sure, many Christians have dealt with all manner of guilt because of the things that are said here and their, their diligent attempt at applying them, but perhaps applying them in the wrong ways. And so we're going to read this as I straighten out my microphone, and we're going to uh, figure out what exactly it is saying to us. So verse 8, it says this, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. 
For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Wow. All kinds, I mean, there was probably something that you went, whoa, what, huh, right? There's all kinds of craziness going on in this passage. You're like, how much time do we have to deal with this? And don't worry, we have a 1045 service. So you have to be out of here at least before then. So don't worry. But what are some principles that we can grab out of this? And I'm gonna do my very best, you guys, to try to give you concise and clear um, interpretation of what God's trying to tell us today as best I possibly can. So principle number one. Okay, and by the way, I call the message Christian single, Christian mingle. Um, And we'll talk about why. But so you'll have to run with my terminology here. But principle number one, being a Christian single is great. But if you can't handle the temptation, then you better Christian mingle. Now, Christian Mingle, of course, refers to the website, and then there's a movie, a Christian movie called Christian Mingle or whatever else, and you better, you better meet somebody, you better get married if you can't handle the temptation of being single. Now, wh- so let's get into this a little bit, because you can see the scripture on the screen, and what he's trying to say is if you're single, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's important for us to say that because historically, as the church, we've done a really bad job, not just our church, but the church in general, except for maybe the Catholic Church, was tend to elevate singleness to priests and nuns and that sort of thing, which I don't believe is commanded by Scripture whatsoever. But we have done a terrible job when it comes to treating single people because so much of our content and our, our ethos or our, our, even our programming tends to revolve around issues related to the family. And, and so it's very easy for a single person to come to church and feel like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me, or maybe people perceive there's something wrong with me, or almost like I'm ashamed, or, or how do I get along in this church as a single person? What things, what, what, what ways am I being included? And also, we can tend to unfairly characterize single people, you know? A single guy in his 40s, or a single guy in his 50s, like, man, what's wrong with that guy, you know? How come he can't find someone? Or even a woman for this, the, the same kind of thing, like, what's wrong with her? She's single for a really long time. And we can tend to make assumptions about people that aren't fair and aren't true and aren't good. And so understand that, that, that being a single person is a legitimate lifestyle that, that Paul is affirming here and saying, you know, in a lot of ways, it's advantageous, especially back then with persecution and everything else that was going on of Christians. You don't have the, the demands of managing a family. You don't have the demands of having to worry about all these other people in your life. You just have to worry about you. So practically speaking, it's a lot easier. But I think that there's something else that's important here too is that we, we often think that those who are in a relationship, you know, like that's kind of what's normal or what's good or what's expected. But oftentimes, when you look at those relationships, even among married people, they're very, very unhealthy. And the reason they're unhealthy oftentimes is because this person, rather than remaining single, ran to another person to try to get out of that person what they could only find in God. 
And a single person oftentimes can recognize, you know what? I may have deep needs, but those needs can't necessarily always be fulfilled by a human being. My deepest needs can only be fulfilled by God. And you hear this a lot in like, you sense this like, if you listen to a lot of music that's out there in the culture, and my daughter and I, we were in the car the other day, and she had a song on from Adele. And I, I, I think she's a wonderful singer. I mean, she has an amazing voice, this woman. And, she, and it was interesting. I was listening to the words of this one song that's called Remedy. And, and, and the lyrics kind of uh, caught me because she's saying in the song, she's saying, when the pain cuts you deep and when the night keeps you from sleeping, just look and you will see that I will be your remedy. When the world seems so cruel and your heart makes you feel like a fool, I promise you will see. I promise you will see that I will be your remedy. And I listened to that and I said, no, no, you won't. No, you won't. You, you can't. You can't. Maybe you, you, you can try, but you can't be my remedy. You can't fix me. You might be able to provide me companionship and, 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 and relationship and, and, and remind me of the love of God, but you cannot be the love of God. You cannot, you cannot fill the eternal vacuum that is located in here. You can't. And for me to make you or demand that of you or expect it of you, of, of you would be unfair. We would destroy each other. And this is what happens. So how much of, of secular cultural love songs really are worship songs? You, you ought to do a little experiment and listen to, listen to music, listen to love songs and go, could, is that a song I could sing to God? Seriously, you're all I need. You're everything I want. You've maybe come back to life. You've, you're, you're, you're what I was made for. These are things we sing to each other. And I know they're heartfelt, and there's nothing wrong with, 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 saying, with, with expressing these kinds of poetic lines to each other, but we've got to think about the kinds of things we're saying and the expectations we're laying on people. And so my whole point is, you know, don't, don't look at the single person and think, oh, it's so sad for them, because it may be sad in a practical sense at certain times because there's a loneliness that's there, to be sure. But it does not necessarily mean that they, they somehow haven't found a very deep and personal and intimate connection with God that fulfills their deepest needs, while their relational needs may still be something that they're just kind of having to endure and live with. But far better, that person than the person over here who is, who is miserable in a human relationship because they're demanding out of that human what they can only get from God. And that's what destroys so many people. And so we got to think about that. Now at the same time, this life of singleness is really for those who would have the gift of celibacy. And celibacy, I don't think, is just purely about sex. It's about romance and everything else as well. And so, you know, it's so, it's so common for a young person. I think Gabe kind of touched on this last week. But it's so common for young people to be afraid that they have the gift of celibacy, you know. Like, oh, God, dear God, please don't give me that gift, right? That's the gift I don't want. I don't want the gift of celibacy. And I would say if you're afraid of having the gift of celibacy, you probably don't have it. So don't worry. You know what I mean? Like just lighten up a little bit. You'll find someone. Get on Christian Mingle or whatever. I'm joking. But you know what I'm saying? You'll be okay. But it's hard when you're young or whatever and you you're still have all this life ahead of you and you feel like you're not getting any younger and all that kind of stuff. But he's saying, look, it's better to marry somebody than to burn with passion. It's better to marry somebody than to, than to go out and have a one-night stand. It's better to marry somebody than to be consumed with lust all the time. And when you really are, I mean, look, I've said, look, sex is not a bad motivator to, for people to get married. It's, I mean, when you're a Christian especially, and, and, and even to meet somebody and to become the right person. You, you know what? I think it's important for a man to ask himself, you know, what do I need to do to attract the right woman? I need to get a job move out of my parents' house, start dressing a little better, work on my social skills a little bit. Those aren't bad things. 
You know, be able to be somebody that a woman can look at and go, that dude can take care of me. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. Ladies, same kind of thing. What do I have to work on in here? In my attitude, in my, in my everything, in my heart? What, what do I have to work on? How do I become a person that that right man is going to see those qualities in me? Those aren't, that's not a bad pursuit. And he's, he's basically saying that. So number, principle number two, if you do indeed, Christian mingle, then you stay married. But if you divorce, stay Christian single or else reconcile. So this is what he says in verse 10. This is important. To the married to give his charge, not I but the Lord. So he's saying, hey, I really believe this is God. This is like God. This is God's, and basically the command, because you can hear this from Jesus and everything else. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now this right here, my friends, is the most controversial part of the whole section, which is still very controversial. So I need to follow you, I need you to, f- to follow me on this very carefully. Because what he seems to be saying is if you've been divorced, you cannot ever get remarried, which is going to bring a ton of guilt and shame and confusion and consternation, in fact, to, to people that have done that, to people who have been divorced in the past and they get remarried. In fact, and, and it's caused all kinds of craziness in, the, in Christianity. In fact, I remember uh, well, just this last week, we were having a little kind of roundtable discussion about this passage, and there was a woman um, who was in the room talking about this, and she said she has a, a very good friend, her and her husband have very good friends, who the, the, the woman married a guy who had been married before. And her parents, this woman's parents, who, got, who married this guy, had been married before, were so upset that she married a guy it was, who was a second marriage that they literally disowned the daughter. And to this day, they will not speak to their own daughter because of that. Because, of, because they feel like she's violating this verse. And I, I sit there and go, that's, this, that's just, that, you know, if you want to know why people get so sick of Christians, that's one really good reason why. Who would disown your own, like who does that? Who disowns your own child over something like that? Because sometimes we just get so legalistic in our, in, our, in, in our misinterpretations of what's going on. So we have to understand what we're dealing with in this passage, all right? First of all, in this particular section, when he says, to the married, he's talking about people in the room. This is a letter being read to people in this church, who in the assumption is they are both Christians and both receptive to the will of God. Okay, so they're both, just like we had the baptism here, husband and wife together, wanting to walk with the Lord, growing together. He's saying, look, do not divorce each other. Because what's happening is you have people sitting in church, and they're trying to follow Jesus, but but they're human beings, right? So, you know, they get married, they have a little one at home, he's not bringing her flowers anymore, she's nagging him about being on the, you know, playing video games, and and their love starts to kind of show little cracks, and it's kind of fading, and they begin to wonder, did we marry the wrong person? Maybe we should just blow the whole thing up and start over. And by the way, there's no real scripture in, in existence at that point. We would tell them any different. They don't know. They're surrounded by a culture that does it all the time. And Paul says, no, no, don't do that. This is my command for you. If you're, you're, you're both together walking with Jesus, do not divorce. Now, what's really interesting here, too, is if you look at the language, the language, it does not say the wife, um, it doesn't say that um, it says if she does, she should not. Well, hang on a second. Mm. Oh, but if she does. Go back to verse 11. But if she does. It doesn't say if she has. So when it says she not separate from her husband, but if she does, it doesn't say but if she has. In other words, Paul's not interested in the past. He's interested in the future. 
And it's a very, very important thing. You see this even all throughout Scripture um, in 1 Timothy 3 when he's talking about qualifications for eldership. He says, hey, look, you should, there should be a husband of, of but one wife. So if a man's called to church leadership, he should, have, he should be the husband of one wife, not three. Because back then you could have three wives. You know, and, and he doesn't say, but it's, it's, some people think, oh, that means he can't ever have been married before. So a guy that's in church leadership cannot have, he's the husband of one wife. That means he can't be on his second wife from a previous marriage. That's not the language. The language is concurrently right now, he should not have more than one wife. He might be the great guy, but that's, the bad, that's a bad model. We're not going to have that as leadership in the church. Because he also says you shouldn't be angry. He doesn't say a person should have never been angry. He shouldn't be given to drunkenness. He doesn't say the person has never been drunk in their life. Otherwise, that'd be a really small pool of people to choose from. (laughs) It's true. Now, I want to put someone up on the screen that helps illustrate this. This is a little drawing that I made. Okay. There's the past and there's the future. It's my lovely art, art. but you guys, you guys love me, so you'll put up with my, my drawings. Um, and in the middle, you see there's a little thing that says, you are here. And you got to remember, you're not in the past anymore. You cannot do anything about in the past. So when we look at the past, what we see is Jesus dies for the past. Jesus redeems the past. Jesus forgives the past. His shed blood is enough to forgive the past. Now, he knows we cannot go into the past. You know, no matter how many times you watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Back to the Future or some other kind of movie that deals with it, it's fun to think about it, but you can't. If you could, then you could go back and undo all that stuff. And what a nightmare that would be, right? But you can't, and God knows that. So he sent Jesus so that you would not be locked in a prison of your past. You have to understand that. So it's what Scripture is concerned with and what God is concerned with is, is going forward. So you see, looking back there, you can't change the past. You can change the future. If you're sitting here right now going, I'm going to bail on my husband. I'm going to bail on my wife. Paul's saying, do not do that. Now, there are exceptions to be sure, but do not do that. You can change the future. So you see there, um, there's a little drawing there. Some people thought it was spaghetti and um, other other, uh, horrible things. Um, It's actually supposed to represent a plate of scrambled eggs. That's what it is. Okay, those are scrambled eggs. Now the thing with, sorry, I'm a bad artist. This is why I'm a preacher. I'm not an artist, okay? So it's a plate of scrambled eggs. You cannot unscramble the eggs, right? Try to take eggs and unscramble. You can't. It's what's done is done. When you crack that egg in that pan, boom, it chemically changes. You can't go back. Now those little circles on the other side, those are eggs that haven't been scrambled. They haven't been cracked or anything. They could be fried. They go over easy, right? They could do all, you could do all kinds. You could, you could hard boil them, whatever. That's your choice. But you're on the front end of that. You can't unscramble those eggs. And God knows that. So you got stuff in your life and you go, I can't go. We have, there's been people who have come to this church who have married the person that they cheated on their spouse with. So they cheated on their spouse 10 years ago with somebody and then they, it was a mess, and then they, and rather than reconciling with that, with that person like they should have done, and repenting and everything else, they stayed with that person that they cheated with, and then they married them. And then they woke up and said, we got to get back to church. This, I mean, I'm, there's no, more than one that have, that have come into our doors. What do, what do I do with a situation like that? I go, well, stay married. Yes, you know, divorce that person. You, you, you remain as you are. But what you do 
is you come to a place of repentance and you say, God, you know what? We, we have what we have, but we shouldn't have got it that way. And what you do is you make sure you tell everybody how God redeems and restores, but do not go down our road. Because people will look at you and go, well, it worked for them. He's happy to gal. He ditched his wife and married this other gal. And look at them. They got a nice little family and they're driving a suburban and everything else. And you can go, yeah, well, you know, God just, God, God has grace. You need to always accompany that story with, listen, never do what we did. But so by the grace of God that we're, that we're even, you know, that we even have what we have, but we, we walk with humility. Toward, that's how you'd have to deal with something like that. Okay, but, but, but we, you gotta, you know, you, the Corinthian church is just a wreck. And Paul's saying, I mean, it's, it's all kind, he just says, as, stay as you are. No more swapping people out and all this kind of stuff. Stay as you are. Now, th- that being said, there are instances where divorce is permitted. I've, we have traditionally said this, I call them the three A's. Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And be very careful how you apply those. Jesus talks about it, it's very clear about adultery in the book of Matthew. Okay, the other ones aren't as clear, but they have to do with breaking marriage vows. And I'm, I'm, I, I'll tell you what, you gotta be very careful about that word abuse, okay? Because, you know, like, I have teenage girls in my house, and it's amazing to me how, like, um, it's so funny, teenagers, right? Because you can, you can not even raise my voice, but just speak in a firm tone, like, you know what? You need to get off your phone right now. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, rager. <laughs> whoa, whoa, out of control, man. Counseling, right? I'm going... I just, I just, now I'm going to get out of control, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and threat, you know, th- threats to call CPS and all this stuff. It's, it's like, really? <laughs> okay, you go, you go down that road. I'll give you the number, okay? I mean, it's just, it's just so funny because, and it's all just elevating the language, right? It's elevating, it's taking something. So uh, half the time when people call abuse, is not abuse. You know abuse when you see it. Abuse isn't they hurt my feelings. Abuse is I am not safe in my home. And there is psychological abuse as well. There's gaslighting and all that kind of stuff that's come on the scene now that people talk about where one person can just emotionally destroy another person. But that takes a lot of time. And that's not an instant out either. See, a lot of times what happens, guys, is one person is secretly hoping, especially if they're Christians, secretly hoping for a ticket out. Oh, if he just punch me. Oh, if, she, if, I, if he just cheat on me. Oh, if he just do. Then I, then I could be, then I could have my conscience clear and I could bail because I'm not in love with him either. And these are not first offense kinds of things, okay? These have to be ongoing kind of things that you, that you say, listen, you know what? We're going to try to work through this. Because when we talk about the audience that's here, married couples, in the room, both wanting to pursue a relationship with God. I got to be honest with you. I've been in ministry for a long time, and I asked our focus group people that we had last week, I said, can you think of an instance that you can remember where a couple got divorced, where both parties were pursuing the will of God? Donut. Nothing. I couldn't, I couldn't think of one. It's usually almost always one or both. They said, yeah, I know God says this, but I'm out of here. I know God wants me to do this, but I'm, I'm not living for him. And they might call themselves a Christian. They may even show up to church, but they're not walking with Jesus. Everybody knows it. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do when one spouse leaves and moves to a different state? Do you file for divorce the next day? No. But after a while, it's like, we don't have a marriage anymore. What do you do if they get remarried? Paul, Paul addresses this later. He says, look, if you're, if you're no longer bound, don't seek to be bound. If the person goes and marries somebody else, you, there's... You have nothing else you can do about that. 
So my point is this. If you are right now, it, it, I think the most direct ap- applicable teaching to this would be if you, if you are a Christian person who's seeking the Lord and you have divorced another Christian person who is seeking the Lord and you both are unmarried at this point, reconcile. Reconcile. You wouldn't be the first. You wouldn't be the first couple to have divorced and then found your way back together again. It happens a lot. Doesn't, it does not as often as other situations, but it does happen. But what I'm trying to tell you, however, is that typically that's not the case. And I, I'm not going to tell a person, you know, who, who goes through a painful divorce in the past and that person, that other person's long since moved on and they've, they're involved sexually with somebody else or whatever else. You're no longer bound to that person. It's just the way that it goes. So there's all these kinds of things. And again, everybody's got their own, um, their own situation. But that's how we have to take this. But you need to make, this is a, this is a really interesting point. Um, a friend of mine who's been a pastor for many years was really stringent on this point. Like if a person had a divorce in the background that really kind of um, could, could damage them in terms of their ability to do ministry later on. And it's really funny because somebody in his own family recently went through a divorce and, and was very guilty about it. And when he looked at the situation, he tried to encourage that person, the person in his family, because the person in his family was like, you know what, I don't ever want to get married again or whatever else and I feel guilty about this divorce. And he, he's such a brilliant theologian and he realized this when it happened to him in, in, in an experiential way. And he, and he told this person in his family, he said, you know what, um, God's got a divorce on his record as well. You know that? You read the Old Testament. God, God's people that he made a covenant with ran from him, ran from him, and ran from him. And finally he's like, I, I got, what else can I do? God's got one on his record. Now, he continues to restore that relationship with, his, with the Israelites, but, do, but you read the minor prophets, man. It's all language about marriage and divorce. God says, I hate divorce. Why? Because he's been through that pain himself of people that he loves running away from him, being unfaithful to him. Principle number three. If your non-believing spouse, in other words, you're not in a Christian mingle, you're in a, you know, it's not that situation of both Christians, leaves because you became a Christian, let them go. Now, so it says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he kind of goes through this whole thing saying, if you're living with somebody who's not a believer and you become a believer and they see in you something different that they don't like and they go, well, now you're not, you know, we don't party anymore or whatever else. And they bail on you and they leave you. There's nothing you can do about that. You know, you just got to let them go. Now, in, the, in that culture, you can imagine that happening because, for example, um, one of the things that you might do a lot is, is your, you know, your social life was bound a lot to the worship of temple, the, the, at the temple and different gods and that sort of thing. So even if you're a woman and your husband becomes a Christian and all of a sudden he's like, you know, I'm a hardcore Christian. I worship Jesus. I don't go to the temple of Artemis or I don't go to these other temples. And, and, but see, that's where you'd find a lot of the business transactions. So now you're going to go get money to be able to support your family, but you don't go to those places anymore because you have to worship when you go there and, the, and you're, you're business involves worshiping pagan uh, gods, you don't do that anymore because you're sold out for Jesus now that it affects your income. And now the other ladies are starting to whisper like, hey, look at them. You know, like they're, they, they're losing all their money and like that camel they're riding is looking really broken down and old and, you know, like what's wrong with her husband, right? And then she's on the outs in the little social circle because, because now she's got a husband who's poor because he's financially suffering because of his relationship with Christ. You don't think that's going to affect her if she's not a believer and she might go, I don't need this crud. I'm out of here. So it can cut both ways, and it has cut both ways. It cuts both ways today. 
You know, there are people who, when they go, you know, we used to party together, we used to all these things together, and now you don't do that anymore, and I feel betrayed, I feel abandoned, I'm out of here. And Paul says, what can you do about that? What you don't want to do is do whatever they want you to do and live a life apart from Christ. You follow the Lord first. Now, he goes on to say, for if the unbelieving husband is made holy because, uh, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's verse 14. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, as it is they are holy. Now, that's kind of weird. You go, what does that mean? And basically, does it mean that just because you're in the home as a Christian, your children are automatically Christians? But you know what it does mean? It does mean your testimony is everything. And guys, I'm just telling you, I've seen it over the years. Parents who get so involved with life, with sports and everything else, and they'll drive their kids to church for our youth ministry especially, and they'll drop them off, and they'll drive away, and they go, oh, this is really cool. I'm, I'm being a good parent because I'm taking my kid to church. And they drop their kid off, and their kid goes to the youth group. Well, no, that's, all they're doing is producing a kid who's going to grow up someday, have kids of his own, and drive those kids to church, and drop them off and drive away. Because they follow you. I mean, you got to understand, like, we have great student ministry staff here, and great children's ministry directors, and leaders, and everything else. They, can, they, can, they just do a, a tiny, tiny percentage of what you as parents can do with your own kids. I mean, we can't, you think about the amount of time we spend with your kid. It's, it's not nearly as much as, your, as the teachers and not nearly as close to what you spend. So your example is, so a lot of times we have parents that just quite frankly work against the, tri- the things that we're trying to build into the life. We're trying to build into our kids' lives the fact that, you know, when you attend church regularly, it strengthens you again and allows you to build walls against the crud of life that wants to smash you and destroy you. You know, it's like you don't go to the gym or you don't work out for a while and then you go out and you try to like hike up the top of the white tanks and you're like, why is this so hard? Well, because you haven't trained for it. And we have people that they, just haven't, they haven't been to church in six months. They, haven't, they don't read their Bible. They're functioning atheists. And then they go, I don't know why all this terrible stuff's happening to me. I know I'm not spiritually strong. Well, you know, there's only so many times you can stay home and just and watch football and not engage with God at all. But we just tend to think, oh, today is fine. Today is no big deal. And we train our kids to think the same thing, you know? So the whole point is, look, the presence of a Christian parent in the home is massively important in the redemption of that child. And can be a huge influence on the husband or the wife as well. This is why it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. In other words, don't just sit there and, and you know, when it says subject, we, we know that being submissive, we have a whole thing on that. It's not about, you know, walking three steps behind and bowing down and all this crazy. It's not what the Bible's saying at all. It, it's talking about this, a spirit of rest that God has provided this person to be able to, uh, to be that, that spiritual leader in your home. Now, if he's not that person, what you do as a wife, rather than giving him a hard time about it all the time, is you, you have that gentleness and that quiet spirit, that beauty. Quiet doesn't mean you don't talk a lot. Quiet means you, you don't have a spirit that's freaked out all the time and you know, but is able to, to, to manage your emotions in a way that is not causing drama and chaos in your home, and you, you develop that spiritual strength that hopefully will be the best shot that he might have. So someday if he stands before God and says, well, I didn't have any picture of you or who you were, God, or anything like that, he's just going to say, well, I gave you your wife, and she was the best picture of me that I, you could have ever had in your life. 
So there's no guarantees, but there's still this idea that your presence in the home can have an incredibly powerful impact. And so there's a huge can of worms there on, on, on some of that stuff, but please understand, God is not wanting you to stay in a relationship that's abusive. Um, God is not wanting you to stay in a relationship where the guy is just having multiple affairs. That's, that's, not, that's not the point. But let me tell you what is the point of so much of this, guys, is community. See, we have connection groups, and I meant to have my little connection group, uh, my little uh, program up here to show you. But you know, you have your connection group questions in your, in your um, program, right? And what's so important about that is all these decisions, you know, if you're having a problem with your marriage, you need to talk to somebody in your connection group about that. These, these decisions should not be made in isolation. And yet, there are people in this room right now who have stuff going on in their marriage, and they're not telling anybody. And so they're making decisions in a vacuum, in isolation. That's not God's plan. That's not, it's not wise. Every major decision, especially one involving a relationship, should be made with people that know you. You always know if you're about to do something wrong if you don't want to tell a soul around you about it because you think they won't understand. Really? Really? So I challenge some of you, this week in your connection group, if you're struggling, you don't have to admit it to the whole group, but grab the leader or grab one or two people aside and say, listen, can I talk to you? I'm about ready to file for divorce, man. I'm just being honest. Can I tell you that's better to say that than to, than to just disappear like so many people tend to do in the Christian world? They just disappear. And you know what they do? They go to another church and then and they start a new life somewhere else. And, and Paul's like, he's going to go on and say, he goes, I just don't want you guys to have so much pain. So please, if you're in that spot, if, you, if you're fighting, if you're not close, if, you're, if your relationship is strained, Talk to somebody. You wouldn't be the first one. Trust me, okay? We're all in the same boat. We're human beings. Finally, principle number four, whether you're Christian single or Christian mingle, whether you're going to be a single or you're going to mingle, do it for the glory of God. Why? This is astounding to me. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, the purpose of relationships is to display the glory of God. So I said before, you know, you can't be everything that a person wants you to be uh, in terms of you can't play that, that you can't be that God-shaped hole in the heart of the other person, but you can be the best reminder. And one of my, my job as a husband is to be evidence, exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, every single day of my life that there is a loving and gracious God who pursues her. I can't be everything she wants me to be, but I can remind her of the one who can be everything she wants her to be by my conduct, right? I can, I can color her life in such a way that she has, that for her to be an atheist or for her to think that God doesn't love her would be the most unnatural, ridiculous thought she would ever have because she has people in her life, namely myself, who try every day as best as I possibly can in the midst of failures and stupidity and immaturity and just being a dude, you know, to, to not, to, to be the best husband I can, but so I can show her, because I want her to know that, man, there's a God that loves you and restores you and cares for you, even when you're feeling insecure and tired and like you don't matter. No, no, I, I want you to see something different. And, and, and the same thing goes to the other way around. And my wife has been such a beautiful picture of grace in my life because I, I run pretty hard, man. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm hard on myself. I'm hard on myself. I'm very critical of myself, to be honest with you. 
And, and what's been amazing in my relationship with my wife is I expect her to go, yeah, you're right, man. You really suck at that. Like, I expect her to say, like, in my, I go, because it's, it's obvious I failed at this. It's obvious I messed this up. It's obvious that I should have done better over here. And I expect her to agree with me. And she's like, well, no. No, this was actually really cool. And I go, really? And I, and I hear, I hear in her voice, God's voice. And I go, yeah, that's why, you, that's why God, you put her here. Because I can't hear your voice, God, but I can hear hers. And believe me, we have our struggles and our issues, but when it's good, that's what's going on. So Paul's goal with this whole thing, especially if you're married to a non-believer, is, man, wouldn't it be so amazing if your life and your testimony reached that person? You know why? Because God, because God wants us to reach everybody around us. God's goal is evangelism. And I wonder, Christian, how many people do you have in your life that don't know Jesus? And what are you doing about that? Does it bother you that they haven't? And not, not because you haven't got another convert, but because you know what to do when you think about death. You know what to do when you begin to feel depressed or that you're not worthy or that you're guilty for past sin. You already have all of everything that you need in the pages of Scripture. And you have people around you that don't have a clue. And they beat themselves up or they walk around thinking that they're just going to die and everything's going to be fine. And our hearts should break for that situation. So the thing I want to I give you an opportunity to do more than anything else is, is if, if you're weighed down by the past, I want you to be free from that today. I don't know how much time we have because I, uh, the thing up here, um, okay, I can't see that, but I'll just gauge I have a little bit more time. Do I have a little bit more time? Yeah, thank you. Look at that. <laughs> you should have said like seven, man, and just give me a buffer. Um, now everyone's got there. So I'm going to have Gabe come out. Gabe, are you back there? Can you come out? He's like, really? Um, he's going to play a little song. And I just, what I want you to do, because we weren't sure with baptism how long it was going to take, but I want to give you, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you an opportunity right where you are um, to, to leave the past behind. All right? And, and so I'm going to lead you through a prayer. And if you've been through a divorce, and, it's, and, and let's, there's two categories of people. Because for those of you that got walked out on, those of you that were cheated on, those of you that were abandoned, man, that hurts. That sticks to you. And I want you to, um, to take in a moment the opportunity to declare to God, you know what, God, I am, I am no longer going to let this define me. I am no longer going to see myself through the eyes of what that person did to me and how that person treated me. I am no longer going to see my life as a, as a person who failed in a marriage. But I'm going to see myself the way God sees me. I'm going to see myself as someone who's loved so dearly, who's made in the image of God, who's, who, who sent his son Jesus so that every time another drop of blood fell off the cross, I lost another sin. But I've been made pure and holy, and I cannot change the past. And then I also want to talk to those of you who were the ones that walked out. You walked out. You abandoned your family. You cheated on your spouse. And maybe it was years ago, but it's there. And you're still beating yourself up over that. 
Well, if you haven't yet confessed it to the Lord and you haven't yet repented, you should beat yourself up over it. But if you have repented in a heartfelt way to say, God, I'm, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was, I was lost. You need to be free from that as well. That's who you were. That's not who you are anymore. You're not a cheater. You're not a liar. You've been made whole. We need to start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And we need to stop playing games in our heads. And so whatever you're at, I'm going to pray. Gabe's going to play. Just do some business with God. So would you bow your heads? God, we got a lot of pain in this room because of the past, and we cannot change the past. We cannot unscramble those eggs, which is why you sent Jesus. So I pray today if there are people here who need to say it's time to let go, that they would let go. They would bring that sin and lay it at your feet and watch it get drenched by the blood of your innocent son, thrown into the deepest sea, never to be dredged again. For those who've been abused, who've been walked out on, who've been abandoned, who've been, who've been left holding the bag, holding the family, holding the bills, holding the responsibility, who've been lied about and slandered by a person who promised to love them, God, would they sense your nearness, your love, your restoration. You'd guide them. You'd make them whole. You'd strengthen them so they could stand and lift their head and say, I am not what they said I was. I am who you say I am, God. And I will walk with dignity into the future. Uh, you restore and you forgive and you, you show us a picture of grace that is more beautiful than anything we could have ever come up with on our own. So may we hold on to that and, and go forward with those unscrambled eggs, with that new opportunity that you've given us to live in your light of your grace and your goodness. And may we walk in holiness and purity and passion and strength and fidelity and goodness for your name's sake. And so you may be glorified and made known among all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.